The Way Out Podcast, episode 188. I kind of went the, the route that many people went, and the, you know, there are different stages of addiction, and most people start with the experimentation phase, you know, mm. oh, let me try that, let me try this. You know, then it becomes a little bit more recreational, becomes a little more habitual, and then you start getting into the abuse and the dependence. So, mm. you know, I'm a little bit of an older guy, you know, I'm from New York. Uh, the drinking age when I was growing up was 18. Okay. Uh, there were no picture licenses. It was a little piece of paper that said brown hair, brown eyes, five foot six or seven, whatever you are. So it was uh, easy for me because I had a brother who was several years older than me and I was able to just go down to motor vehicles, get a copy of his license when I was 14 and you know we're off to the races pretty much. And that's where the stress, Charlie, really came in, because at the end, I was living two different lives. I mean, it really became, you know, uh, a life of the drinking and the drugging and the girlfriend and another life of being a, you know, community leader, attorney, perfect family, dog, picket fence, two cars. Oh, yeah. You, know, you get, Charlie, you get some God moments in mm -hmm. your life that you may not see yet because you don't have that spiritual mindset yet. But one of them was when I went to see my family doctor, I was diagnosed with, with diabetes. And uh, I went in to see him and my sugar was 800. Oh, wow. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant, but he said, you know, you should, there's a good chance you're gonna die if that keeps up, your sugar should be about 100. So he did it again and it was 7.99. Wow. And we, you know, first he asked, you know, what do you eat for breakfast? I said, oh, you know, Pop-Tart, soda, you know, stuff like that. And he said, well, you're probably gonna have to get rid of that, but. He's like, I know you like to drink. And I said, yeah, well, you know, on occasion, you know, you try to tone it down a little bit for the of doctor. Course. Of course. But of course he goes through the procedure and he says, well, well, let's try to figure out how many drinks you have a week. And I said, well, all right, you know, I probably go out, you know, five days or nights a week. I probably have X amount of drinks, this, this, uh, figure 20 drinks a day, five days a week. I don't know, about a hundred. And he looked at me with this face of just like shock. And I was like, why, how many do you have? And he's like, he's like, I don't know, two? Like, two? You know, so that was one of the moments that was kind of like, oh, yeah. So being the good alcoholic, understanding now that I may have a medical condition that might affect, my drinking might affect that, well, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I drink bourbon and ginger ale. The ginger ale is full of sugar and it's killing me, so I got to get rid of the ginger ale and just drink the bourbon straight because, you know, the soda's killing me. I did my 365 days and, and, and probably in the first week that I got there, um, you know, I'm a creative guy, you know, somebody gave me a pen and a piece of paper and I just started writing some things down. And I was very therapeutic. And I started remembering or trying to remembering and I said, oh, that's a funny story. Oh, that's interesting. And when I got transferred to the cell block where I was for pretty much the remaining 11 and a half months of my stay, um, I was able to gather more writing material. I was able to get a dictionary. I was able to get a thesaurus. And pretty much any free time I had was spent writing because it just passed the time. I can't change anything that happened in the past. Mm. You know, Bill Gates or the richest man in the world doesn't have a time machine to go back and change things that they did right you know i can't change the weather i can't change the fact that you know in five minutes it's going to be five minutes later from now i can't change another person against their will what can i change 
I can change my perspective, I can change my bad habits, and I can become a better person. That's what I need to do. And part of it is humility, right? And, and realizing that we're not, uh, you know, the almighty. Part of it is getting rid of some of that selfishness. Part of it is having some temperance for other people. You know, if somebody's living their life and they're happy, but I don't agree with the way they're living it, but the other person's happy, then I don't need to butt in. You know, I don't need to be in the drama. You know, there was so much drama, Charlie, when I was using. The only drama I have now is when me and my wife sit down and watch one of those housewife shows. You know what I mean? On Bravo. <laughs> That's where I get my drama now. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't want any drama. It was done, again, more for therapeutic reasons than I want to write a book, I want to do this, I want to do that. But after a while, it was like, yeah, maybe I can really help people. And maybe I can piece this together. Um, and, you know, when I got out, there were other issues that I still had to attend to. But, you know, I started looking back at it and I said, well, certainly it needs to be edited. Certainly I need to put some more time in, but, but I think it's worth it, even if it helps one person. I did what they told me to do and I prayed and meditated. Just uh, turned six years on the sober time clock, so I'm feeling good. Pretty sure that in the uh, restaurant and pub that I used to hang out with, they had a pool and it was probably somewhere in the name of six to 24 hours of when I was going to relapse. Welcome Way Out faithful and first timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast partners with All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com, where you'll find stunning recovery rings made from your very own recovery coin. That's AllRecoveryRings.com. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Every week, we'll be asking for your thoughts on next week's topic. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Finally, a word of caution. This podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and this week we've got an absolutely delightful interview with the author of the new book, The March to Madness, 
Nelson Dossier. Nelson, now six years sober, shares his story, which was the inspiration for his book, with equal measures of humor, wisdom, and authenticity. We dig into his recovery journey, what it finally took to enter meaningful and long-term recovery, and his process in writing the tale of the debaucherous double life he led during active addiction, the unbelievable events that led him to the literal brink of death, and what recovery looked like in the aftermath of the tumultuous saga that was his life prior to getting sober round about six years ago. This one's got it all, folks, so listen up. Nelson Dossier, thank you so much for joining the Way Out podcast and taking time out of your busy schedule to share some experience, strength, and hope with us. I appreciate it. It's, uh, it's my pleasure, Charlie. Um, just uh, turned six years on the sober time clock, so I'm feeling good. And, That's uh, tremendous. Six years is a tremendous, tremendous accomplishment. If you're anything like me, uh, that doesn't happen by accident. No, I'm sure that, in fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in the uh, restaurant and pub that I used to hang out with, they had a pool, and it was probably somewhere in the name of six to 24 hours of when I was going to relapse. So, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, getting to six years, I feel like calling them and saying, if the money's still there, I should probably get it. That's right. That's absolutely 100%. Why don't you take some time out to introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience, and then we'll dig into your story a little bit, and in the process, talk about the inspiration for your new book, The March to Madness. Sounds good. Um, you know, I, I, when I look back on my addiction, um, you know, I kind of went the, the route that many people went and, the, you know, there are different stages of addiction and most people start with the experimentation phase, you know, mm. oh, let me try that. Let me try this. You know, then it becomes a little bit more recreational, becomes a little more habitual, and then you start getting into the abuse and the dependence. So, mm. you know, I'm a little bit of an older guy, you know, I'm from New York. Uh, the drinking age when I was growing up was 18. Okay. Uh, there were no picture licenses. It was a little piece of paper that said brown hair, brown eyes, five foot six or seven, whatever you are. So it was uh, easy for me because I had a brother who was several years older than me and I was able to just go down to motor vehicles, get a copy of his license when I was 14 and, you know, we're off to the races pretty much. A fake ID was a lot easier back then. You know, it wasn't even it wasn't even a fake ID because you didn't have to create it. You just took a birth certificate down to motor vehicle, showed it to them, and they printed you out a brand new license. That's tremendous. Um, you know, so it was very easy. It was very easy to get alcohol. It was very easy to get into bars. And, you know, I think it was just a normal progression. You know, uh, we drank a lot in high school, started, you know, smoking some marijuana and, and doing some other things. And. When I went to college, it, it was just as easy. I mean, again, everybody on campus was 18. So the school actually sponsored the parties. You know, give us a dollar. We'll give you a red cup. Go enjoy yourself. You know? <laughs> and um, 
that, you know, that's kind of the way it went. And then yeah. the drinking shifted to 19 and then to 21 in New York. So things became a little bit more difficult. But, you know, you were grandfathered in. And if you were, people knew you, they weren't going to stop you. Um, but it never got to the point. I mean, listen, I graduated from college. You know, with the three five, I uh, went to class. I did what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel like the drinking and the drugging was really dominating my life. Mm-hmm. You know, same respect. Um, you know, we'd go to the bar one night and try to drink 60 shots in an hour. Right. Right. You know, so we didn't think there was anything wrong anything, with that either. Right. Right. And that so, the binge know, drinking was definitely in full effect. Oh yeah. And you know, there was, there were games like quarters and other types of things that we would play. And you know, if, if, if you won the game, then the losers had to pay for everything. So, you know, we won a lot and uh, we drank a lot and, uh, but it just seemed normal. You know, most other people were doing what I was doing. You know, then I graduated, I went on to law school and uh, you know, you entered into a phase where you needed to study hard and you needed to work hard, mm-hmm. but then you wanted to party hard too. Right. So different things were introduced, you know, and it just it just seemed like every phase of my life, the drinking and drugging was a part of it. Yeah. You know, in hindsight, I realize now in my sobriety that not everybody drinks and uses drugs. But right. when, you're, when you're drinking and using drugs and you're hanging out with people that drink and use drugs, it, it's almost like you feel like everybody's doing that. And it's true because that's who you're hanging out with. That's right. That's who we surround ourselves with as people that are doing as much or more than we're Correct. doing, right? All the experts, you know, all the experts are there <laughs> sitting at the bar. And, you know, um, you know, I used to say I like to go to the bar for the camaraderie. Um, but I think the drinking had something to do with it, too, you know. Um, but, you know, I graduated from law school again and uh, I got a job working at a firm and uh, a lot of young people. And guess what? After work, we had a blow off steam. You know, that's what we called it. So um, it was just a rite of passage. Uh, you know, later on, I got married. Uh, I think I calmed it down a little bit. Um, but then I realized, you know, my wife's uh, an adult. She can take care of herself, you know. Um, so, I, I, you know, I was still experimenting doing different things and then i and then my son was born and then i said okay now i gotta be an adult hmm. now i gotta take care of and know, how somebody. old are you at this point oh my son's 20 so i was probably 33 at that time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i think i got married when i was 30 and then you know a couple of years uh without uh kids and then about 33 at that time and you know i was already in my legal career and doing well um, but I stopped smoking cigarettes then too, cause I didn't want any smoking around the baby. Mm-hmm. And my rationale was, you know, I'm not going outside in zero degree weather to smoke a cigarette, maybe a joint, but not a cigarette. <laughs> you know? So the cigarettes had to go and right. the prices were getting crazy anyway. So, um, so I kind of was, I, you know, I want to say under control. I, I don't like the expression that people use that I was, yeah, functioning alcoholic, but I guess, you know, I was running a law firm. I was doing what I needed to do. Um, things had settled in a little, little bit, but then guess what? Kids grow up, you yeah. know? Yeah. And my, my wife went back to work and things changed and, and then kind of life just changed. You know, the relationship with my wife got bad. 
the, the market crash. I was, I was mostly doing real estate attorney work and the market crash. And it was a perfect storm. And um, just, tr- just started amping it up more and more. And, you know, it finally was, it was at a point where, you know, I realized I was pretty much not just going to the bar at night anymore. Now it was happy hour. Mm-hmm. That which was a, which was a good time for me because I could cut out early and go do what I needed to do for a couple hours. Uh, but then it started becoming lunch. Then it started becoming brunch, almost breakfast time, you know. And uh, many days I woke up and I said, "All right, I'm going to cool it today." And by twelve o'clock, I'm in the bar, uh, you know, betting on the horses, drinking, and and having a usual day of debauchery, as I like to call it. And is this at the point where you started to draw some imagine some 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 lines in the sand? Well, you know, everything's yeah, cool those... if I don't do this. Everything's fine if I don't do that. As you just mentioned, hey, um, uh, I'm going to cool it today, right? And drawing that sort of boundary, and then and then imme- and then immediately, uh, you know, crossing it. I think. And again, I work in recovery in a recovery setting now, helping people with drug and alcohol abuse problems. That's that's what I do now professionally. And I think that not only when they're talking to me, but when I reflect back that when I looked in the mirror at eight or nine o'clock and was getting ready for the day and I said to myself, "Okay, we're not going to drink and drug today. I meant it. Yeah. But it didn't take much to twist my arm to get me to... Forget about what I said in the mirror at eight or nine o'clock because by twelve this is what I want to do, so I'm just going to do it. Look, and I think yeah, and I I'm can sorry. so relate to that because I would do the same thing, and I would put these, you know, boundaries in place. Well, I'm not going to do it today, or I'm not going to be doing it before X time, or I'm only going to have this much, right? Yeah. Yep. And I do that every time, but I would find a reason. Invariably, There's always a good reason. That's right. Uh, any day it, that, you know, any day that ends in a Y is a good reason. Right. Right. Um, or, you know, that that a-hole on the road or yep. my girlfriend yep. or my yep. wife or my kids or my if boss. You had my problems. You'd That's be right. doing what I'm doing. That's right. That's right. Well, I wasn't going to drink today, but that so-and-so, right? <laughs> and it's better yeah. that I drink. Right. Because if I uh, the alternatives worse, the alternatives, I'm going to take that person's hat off. Right. So it's right. better or, that I were walking into the house and kicking the dog and yelling at my son and screaming at my wife. Rather than doing that, I might as well go inebriate myself, get myself into a calm, you know, absolutely space before I walk in the door. That's right. If I can just anesthetize myself, then everything's cool and I'm doing everybody a favor. Ah. Correct. Doing everybody a favor, <laughs> but in the long run, not myself. That's right. You know, and I had, I had certain procedures like, you know, I walked in the bar and, you know, everybody knew me. Um, obviously it was kind of like a cheers situation and, and the bartender knew to put down four coasters, one for a bottle of beer, which I usually didn't touch, but maybe took a sip of one for my normal drink, which was usually uh, some type of bourbon and ginger ale combination. And then I would get a one of these silver canisters, and at the end it was usually um, Southern Comfort, 
which they would put in this canister and chill it. And then instead of a shot glass, like a regular rocks glass. So those were the four things that I would have in front of me. The beer was really there in case my wife walked in and I could kind of push the other stuff aside and she would only see me drinking the beer. <laughs> it didn't look that bad. So the beer was for cover. It was a cover, yeah. The bourbons went down very well. You know, it was easy to do. You know, it does in the night, no problem. And then the Southern Comfort was there just for a little quick, you know, fix. And um, what I didn't realize, except one night, somebody decided to measure them out. You know, that canister would be full, and I'd put it in the rocks glass and just swig it down. And one day they measured that there were probably about 10 shots in that rocks glass, mm. you know, if they measured it out. Mm. You know, and I'm going three, four, five canisters a night, mm. you know? Right. So I learned, I learned not to count or if I had to count, just get a bigger glass. Absolutely. Because you know, I could Absolutely. have five big glasses instead of 10 little ones. Uh, and then you really can see, you know, I only had a few, right? As, right. Long, as long as I can, you know, I, I'm in it around that. I only had a few Right. Correct. Correct. There's always that <laughs> rationalization. And then the other thing that was cool was the, the place that I used to go. It was it was a very good restaurant in the town where I lived too. You know, the bar was in the front and they had a restaurant. So oftentimes my wife and son would meet me there. Sure. Uh, I would say I just got there. You know, I keep that beer on the table, you know, even though I got there two or three hours earlier. So we'd sit down and have dinner and I'd text the bartender. I'd say, you know, line up five or 10 shots on the bar. I'm going to go to the bathroom. You know, I'll drink five on the way there. I'll drink five on the way back. And, you know, I'll square up with you when I leave later. Um, so my wife or my son or anybody else wouldn't even know that I was doing those shots because they were seated at the table. And I would just, you know, excuse myself and go to the restroom and figure out a way to just keep going. When thinking back and when you began drinking and experimenting with drugs did you have one of those sort of nirvana like moments the first time you drank or the first time you used where you you know uh, it it was a memorable experience and in and you know sort of um uh, was it magical for you or for or was it more of a gradual process for you in terms of you know getting to a place where um uh, uh this thing became your go-to um yeah, that's, solution? That's, a good, that's a good question i think that it happened pretty quick i mean I, if i can remember back I'm, I'm sure the first beverage excuse me i had was probably a beer um then i was introduced to, to marijuana which i liked right away yeah. You know, it was just a calming, nice sensation. Mm -hmm. And I have a recollection of um, going to, you know, a, a bar mitzvah. You know, when you get to age 13, you have that bar mitzvah circuit. I was in a community that was Jewish, Italian. So there were, you know, parties, there were confirmations, there were bar mitzvahs. And I remember my father at one point handing me a bourbon and ginger ale and saying, if you're going to drink, this is what you should drink. Mm. And I remember tasting it the first time and I'm like, yeah, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> and how and old were you at that point? I'm, I was probably 13 because okay. I was involved in that bar mitzvah type circuit, you know, where every mm -hmm. other weekend or every weekend yeah. there was a party to go to. Yeah. yeah. And so at age 13, you have this experience and, and, and immediately your brain 
tells you this is this is good. This is I like this. Yes, I like this. It makes me more social. It gives me confidence, liquid courage, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Yes. And, you know, we got so creative because some of the affairs were at the same places at a local temple or a catering hall that we would know that they were setting up the bar at a certain time during the service. And we would sneak out to the bar when nobody was there and steal some bottles and throw them in the bushes so that later on, after the service was over, we could go and, and have our bottles for ourselves and we didn't have to try to steal them off the bar. So fast forward, now we're in a place where uh, you've got a fairly intricate program designed for yourself in order to uh, uh, keep, your, keep, keep your buzz on. Right. Uh, uh, on a fairly regular basis. Um, uh, is, is anybody close to you, your wife, your kid, anybody starting to suspect that there might be something going on? I'm going to say, you know, we're, we're, we're treading back to, you know, my son's born, my wife's there. Uh, maybe I'm going to say, once or twice a year, my wife might turn to me and say, do you think you're drinking a little too much? <laughs> um, and again, not to, we didn't mention this yet, but gambling was a huge part of, of my addiction as well. Mm, okay. And um, okay. The, the gambling, much like the drinking, you know, if my wife thought I went out and had three drinks and bet $50 on a game, that's okay. Right. Uh, she didn't know I was having 30 drinks and betting $50,000 a game. Right. So, right. again, uh, a little bit of knowledge could be dangerous. Um, again, she knew probably what I was doing, but certainly not in any way to the extent that I was doing. So, for you, was were, were the gambling and the drinking very much hand in hand? Yes. Okay. Um, a good deal of my free time was spent handicapping games and then thinking about where I'm going to watch the game, where I'm going to go drinking, where I'm going to go to smoke first, how I'm going to mm -hmm. facilitate everything, mm -hmm. take care of my wife, take care mm -hmm. of my son, take mm -hmm. care of the girlfriend later on that mm -hmm. you know I took a hostage and that was part of my story too. But let's try to placate everybody, control the whole situation mm -hmm. so that everybody's happy and I can mm -hmm. go do what I need to do. Mm -hmm. And that's where the stress, Charlie, really came in because at the end, I was living two different lives. I mean, it really became, you know, uh, a life of the drinking and the drugging and the girlfriend and another life of being a, you know, community leader, attorney, perfect family, dog, picket fence, two cars. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know if you're a Seinfeld guy, <laughs> but I like. I, Absolutely. I, my Absolutely. Whole life is Seinfeld and there's an episode where George is dating two different women. Yes. And at a certain point he says to one of them, you know, oh, ice skating was was really fun last night. And she's like, "Excuse me?" And he's like, "Oh, I meant the movie was good. I meant the movie was good." So, you know, you're making up these stories and these lies. Mm. And you can't even figure out who you made these lies to. You know, I told people, you know, I couldn't tell the truth. If I went to McDonald's, I told you I went to Burger King just because I could make up a better story. Right, right, right. So there was no Because the lies anymore. in the beginning, at least, and for a while, were rewarding, right? You were getting what you wanted out of the lying. It was working for you. 
Correct. At least Correct. for a while. Just like the drugs Correct. and alcohol work for us for a while. The gambling works for a while, right? It only works for a while. Right. I mean, but then if you get to the point where you start almost believing the lies, mm-hmm. it gets very dangerous and puts you in a predicament where sooner or later it's going to catch up to you. So I can yeah. so identify with the Jekyll and Hyde mentality that you talked yes. about in terms of keeping up that facade that you need to keep up so that your wife and your kids and uh, the uh, the people out there in the world need to believe that I am a uh, upstanding citizen. I am a model father. I am a model husband. And... Uh, um, I keep the house and I keep everything in it together from an appearance perspective, um, then I can continue to drink and use and gamble and, um, uh, and do what I want. Um, uh, uh, right. And, as long and to, as go nobody's looking. The, to go back to the Seinfeld thing again, and you know, the worlds weren't colliding yet. The worlds right. were separate. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was able to keep them separate. But then you, you, you talked about crossing the lines, you know. Once, once you cross a line, and for me, when I started accessing funds from people's uh, escrow, my escrow account that I was holding for people, and I started getting into the criminal activity that I started getting into, um, which obviously the book starts with me on my way to the courthouse and talks about, um, my stay in jail, there's several chapters about my stay in jail and, uh, it kind of goes back and forth time-wise to, um, the, the week before my overdose and suicide attempt and to current day life when I'm going back and forth to jail and, um, all that stuff, it really became, I don't know, I, just the most challenging time of my life, you know? And Tell me about difficult. this. It's like a house of cards to a certain extent, right? You're, you're, oh, yeah. you're, you're uh, continuing to sort of escalate. The, your uh, gambling addiction is escalating. Drinking is escalating. Right. And you're beginning to cross lines that you never thought you were going to cross. Right. No, I'm an I'm an admirable guy. I'm an attorney. Right. I'm well right. loved in the community, respected. Right. right. I think that's right. why I got a lot away with a lot of this stuff because people never would have thought it would have been me. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the you know you get Charlie, you get some God moments in mm-hmm. your life that you may not see yet because you don't have that spiritual mindset yet. But one of them was when I went to see my family doctor. I was diagnosed with with diabetes. And uh, I went in to see him, and my sugar was 800. Oh, wow. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what that meant. But he said, you know, you should – there's a good chance you're going to die if that keeps up. Your sugar should be about 100. So he did it again, and it was 799. Wow. And we, you know, first he asked, you know, what do you eat for breakfast? I said, oh, you know, Pop-Tart, soda, you know, stuff like that. And he said, well, you're probably going to have to get rid of that. But he's like, I know you like to drink. And I said, yeah, well, you know, on occasion, you know, you try to tone it down a little bit for the doctor. Of course. But of course, he goes through the procedure and he says, well, well, let's try to figure out how many drinks you have a week. And I said, well, all right, you know, I probably go out, you know, five days or nights a week. I probably have X amount of drinks, this, this, uh, 
So you get 20 drinks a day, five days a week, I don't know, about 100. And he looked at me with this face of just like shock. And I was like, why? How many do you have? And he's like, <laughs> he's like I don't know, two? Like, two? <laughs> you know, so that was one of the moments that was kind of like, oh, yeah. So being the good alcoholic, understanding now that I may have a medical condition that might affect my drinking might affect that. Well, what am I going to do? Well, you know, I drink bourbon and ginger ale. The ginger ale is full of sugar and it's killing me. So I got to get rid of the ginger ale and just drink the bourbon straight because, you know, the soda's killing me. <laughs> you know, that was the rationale. And that's the deal, right? It couldn't possibly be the alcohol that's the well, problem. You know, it could be, but probably not. Let's you cut know, out that not. soda. That, that's the problem. That's well, the issue, clearly. Listen, go on any website, go on. Soda's a killer. It's a killer. Alcohol, not so much. So, you know, that's, that's when I started drinking the Southern Comfort, too, because I had that sweet tooth, right. but I wasn't mixing it with anything. Right. I felt better mentally, you know? Absolutely. 100%. 100%. <laughs> but, you know, listen, the book came basically out of nowhere. Um, I had, I was facing 15 years in jail um, for my various felonies that I had committed. There was millions of dollars missing. Um, they did a year long colonoscopy is what I call it of my records. During that time, I was going to meetings, meeting with my sponsor. I think I did 300 meetings in the first 90 days, uh, because I wasn't working and I needed to fill up the time. And I worked a program, you know, and uh, some, a very wise elder statesman who was also an attorney taught me very early the difference between planning and projecting. Mm. And he said, when we project addicts and alcoholics, we don't really pro project lottery winnings and good things. It's usually negative. And he told me a joke, which I still use today. He said, you know, we all have a blood type. And I said, yeah, I know that. He said, what's the addict and alcoholic blood type? And I was like trying to think, you know, I knew he was giving me a joke. And the answer is be negative because we're never positive about anything. So, you know, our projections are negative. Everything's negative. And he said, just because you're facing a long stint in jail or just because you're facing something else doesn't mean that that's what the result is going to be. You know, if, if, you, if you go to the doctor and he says you may have an issue, he's got to take a test to let you know, well, you don't have, it's not a death sentence yet. Don't get that thought in your head. Mm. And I did what they told me to do. And I prayed and meditated and my lawyer was a guy that I knew, you know, he said, Nelson, you know, it looks like you're going to go up for at least three to nine years. There's nothing I can do. And I said, well, let's go talk to the judge and see. And, you know, we did that and I waited outside and he came out shaking his head and he said, I don't know who you're effing praying to, but I've never seen anybody get a sentence like this. And I ended up getting uh, a year in the county jail, 365 days. I had to do each one of them. Uh, but a much better result than 15 years in wow. the state penitentiary. So that was a pretty big God moment for me right there. Um, you know, some people thought they were just going to pat me on my head and let me go. And I was like, no, I don't think so. There's a lot of money missing. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I did my 365 days. And, and, and probably in the first week that I got there, 
Um, you know, I'm a creative guy. You know, somebody gave me a pen and a piece of paper, and I just started writing some things down. And it was very therapeutic. And I started remembering or trying to remembering. And I said, oh, that's a funny story. Oh, that's interesting. And when I got transferred to the cell block where I was for pretty much the remaining 11 and a half months of my stay, um, I was able to gather more writing material. I was able to get a dictionary. I was able to get a thesaurus. And pretty much any free time I had was spent writing because it just passed the time. Yeah. Uh, and then I had, this is a great one. I had some of the, my fellow inmates come to me and they said, oh, we heard you're writing something, a book or something, you know, you mind if, uh, if I read a little? And I said, sure, I just finished a chapter. You know, you can read it, take your time. And, you know, obviously I didn't have a typewriter, so I'd have to write it and rewrite it so that people could read it. And about three days later, I hadn't heard from this guy. I went to find him and he said, oh, yeah, you know, I just finished that uh, chapter that you gave me. I said, oh, what'd you think of it? He said, you know what? It's like a book. <laughs> and I said, I, you know, I looked at him and I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to write a book. It's going to be a book. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's like a book. So I think that was the best compliment that this guy probably could have given me. Right. Um, being he probably wasn't the most educated or, uh, you know, uh, literate guy. So his impression was that it was like a book. So I was like, well, if this guy thinks it's like a book, maybe I could really write a book. Right, right. And there were many, you know, many times where I'd be sleeping, I'd wake up at two in the morning, I'd be like, oh yeah, that's a good thing. I could probably write a chapter about that. And I'd write some notes and I'd get up in the morning and I'd look at it again and it would just flow. I mean, I always had, I think a knack for writing is what I would like to say, you know? Um, yeah. This is my first published work, but I always had an ability and affinity for writing. College, law school, you know, as a lawyer, um, it was always there and I always enjoyed it. But this was more of enjoying it, therapeutic, a combination of all those things. And that was going to ask you, was that process therapeutic for you in terms of that uh, um, as you're sitting in a jail writing these chapters? Uh, and the inspiration comes to you, that, that ended up being a therapeutic process for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the biggest thing that I had to deal with, I think, Charlie, I mean, now again, keep in mind, I had a huge advantage. I had a year sober before I went into jail, mm -hmm. which most people, you know, you get arrested, you go to jail. Right. <laughs> Maybe That's get right. bailed out, but That's right. so I was in a pretty good place and I was running meetings and in my head, I was in a good space, you know? Um, and my head was pretty clear. So the thoughts would come in. I would jot them down. I would read them. I'd go through it. The biggest problem for me was the guilt and shame I had about what I did. Yeah. The remorse. Mm. Because again, like you mentioned earlier, there were certain lines I never thought I would cross, you know, and, right. um, my father had passed away think about a year after I got married and he was really my moral compass. So he didn't really see the, the addiction and, you know, he knew I gambled, he knew I drank, but again, he never saw it at its worst. And I think that that was a factor of it too. And when I went back to you know, therapy and outpatient and groups and 12 step programs, you know, you try to think about why it happened. And I try not to do that. 
my focus usually is not why it's what do I do now? Hmm. But every now and then you're like, yeah, you know, when, when did I really lose it? Right. And right. then I realized it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, you know, but I was able to, and again, another friend of mine said, I have a lot of good stories too, but I could never write them down the way you did. Right. Right. You know, and he's like the descriptive nature, the honesty, the anecdotes that you're telling, the, the conversations that go back and forth, how you were able to put that all down in writing and make it flow and keep the pace. That's the thing that I think is going to make your book so appealing to not only addicts and alcoholics, but to everybody out there. Because listen, I'm an advocate that everybody needs some kind of program. <laughs> okay. There are a lot of people walking around that may not be addicts and alcoholics that could use a little help. No doubt about it. No doubt and, about it. You know, so uh, it, the hard part is overcoming your adversity, whatever adversity that is, as long as you can put in the effort. But you need that gift of desperation, I mm. think. Mm. You know, nobody mm -hmm. walks down the stairs to a meeting singing and dancing the first time. You know, no, know. you know, yeah. The old saying is, you don't come in, you don't land in the uh, into the rooms of a, of a twelve step meeting on a hot streak. <laughs> yeah, probably not. You know, uh, probably not, not not typically. You know, stuff has gone sideways for a while before that happens. Absolutely, and listen, I had to control everything in my life because of the, you know debauchery that I was doing, not only the drinking and the drugging, the girlfriend, the crimes that I was committing. So I, I had to focus on controlling everything. The biggest revelation for me was when I was doing the steps and I was able to turn my will and my life over to a higher power. You mean I don't have to worry about all these things anymore? God can do this for me and I don't have to worry about it? And realizing that certain things are actually out of my control? Oh, my God, was that a freeing experience. So for you, that was a relief. Oh, my God, such a relief because I tried to control the weather. I tried to sure. control. <laughs> there wasn't anything, Charlie, that I didn't try to control, and, and I felt the need to because the jig would have been up. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. But then at a certain, certain point, I was almost wanting the jig to be up because I couldn't take it anymore. Most people, Nelson, would claw and scratch and kick and scream around steps two and three, giving up that will, turning it over. And I find it so interesting that it, for you it was, oh, thank God, I don't have to worry about this anymore. Yeah, you know, it, it really was. And, and, you know, one of the first things my sponsor said to me was, you don't have to live like this anymore. Mm. And then he said, you know, he always threw out these these gems, you know, as, as they would say on Seinfeld, that's gold, Jerry, that's gold. That's you know? gold 100%. You know, he would say, you know, God didn't save you from drowning in the ocean just to beat you up when he got you to the shore. <laughs> you know, meaning that, you know, listen, I know what you took and I know what you did and you should be dead. God saved you for a reason. Are you willing to 
you know, allow that to be the foundation and part of your recovery. And, you know, I, I was an atheist pretty much my whole life, philosophy major in college, wrote my thesis on the non-existence of God, uh, you know, was an attorney, factual, mm -hmm. you know, show me things. And if I couldn't feel it and touch it, I didn't believe it. And mm -hmm. then he said to me, well, how'd that work for you? <laughs> I said, well, it worked for a while. Uh, he said, well, yeah. now there's the next question. You got to ask yourself, is it better to believe or not to believe? And mm -hmm. I said, well, if you're putting it that way, I'll try believing. I'll open the door a little bit. You know, the, the uh, books talk about, you know, just opening up a crack, be a little honest, be a little willing. And then before you know it, it'll be opened up wider. And I started seeing positive results. Uh, little things along the way that got me to say, oh, maybe I should believe. And then, uh, as I told you earlier, uh, the sentence I got was an absolute miracle. So, uh, you know, all these signs to show that, hey, if you continue to do the right thing and treat your higher power like a friend and just have conversations. And uh, I was taught that prayer is talking to God and meditation is listening for the answers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, you know, I could deal with that. I, I, I was able to, I didn't know how to pray and meditate in the beginning, but I, but I figured it out. I used some uh, audio meditation that would, you know, get me in the mood. And then little by little, I started to be able to just do it myself. I preferred, you know, a nice dark room, quiet. Um, you know, even during my incarceration, there was an hour a day that was supposed to be quiet time. You know, and most of the guys pretty much abided by that. So you could have that hour of quiet, um, you know, and I would wrap a towel around my eyes and get the darkness and, and, and be able to, you know, really have some good conversations and keep myself um, focused on what I needed to do. And, you know, Charlie, you got to think outside the box sometimes, you know, if everything you've been doing so far is not working, then you better try something else. You know, I Tell think me it was a little bit about what prompted you. What was the impetus for you getting sober before ending up going to jail many times that doesn't happen until afterwards, but you had a year of sobriety. And so, right. So, you know, again, the book focuses on the week out West that I spent with some friends, both male and female. And it talks about my mindset and where I was during those several days. The, ultimate plan without really trying to <laughs> give too much away and, and and spoil some of the fun in the books but i think there's enough clues that are dropped was that i had planned my ultimate demise nobody knew that but me you know mm. and there's a saying what happens in vegas stays in vegas mm. so you know if you're gonna plan something like that you know my my goal was go out and have one last hurrah have all your good friends around you uh, the wife was not there. The girlfriend was there, but that was par for the course. And, you know, the marriage was pretty much over with at that point anyway. So everybody would come out, have a great weekend. Everybody flies home Sunday. I stay till Tuesday and hang out with some of my friends in Vegas. And, you know, Monday night I take a uh, 
potpourri, I like to call it, of, of pills that I had uh, acquired, about 200 pills, and I drink a couple of bottles, and whoever finds me finds me, and that's the end. You, know? you intended to go out in a blaze of glory. Yes. Good, good. Yeah, that's, that's a good way of saying it. You know, that was my intent. And um, I thought it was a foolproof plan. I had everything set up. There was nothing that was going to go wrong. We had a great weekend. Everything was going great. And I don't want to really give away, but there was a God moment. Something happened, and I wasn't able to fulfill the plan that I was going to go through with at that time and ended up flying back to the East Coast and going through with it a few days later. But you know, again, without giving away too much of the plot and the excitement uh, in the book, you know, um, that was the goal. The goal was, was not to come back from Vegas, you know, except in a box. So you'll have to read the book in order to find out what really happened right. in, that, in that escapade in Vegas. Fast forward, you um, uh, uh, enter into recovery Right. Well, it was, it was almost a forced entry because after I consumed the liquor and the pills, um, I was immediately hospitalized the next day uh, because my wife, we were still sharing a residence, not a bedroom, but a residence. Um, she noticed that I was, I guess, passed out or I, I don't really know exactly how she found me. And she called the, obviously, the, you know, the hospital and the ambulance and I was taken to the medical facility and I woke up three days later. So that was the impetus for the sobriety because after that, the jig was pretty much up about everything. <laughs> uh -huh. it, was up, it was up about the girlfriend. It was up about the money missing. It was up about all my plans and endeavors. And, you know, the house of cards had come tumbling down. Right. And, you know, uh, of course, I said, oh, yeah, nothing happened. I just drank a little too much, I guess. Maybe I mixed something. And, you know, the hospital administrators and the people were like, well, you know, we think we're going to send you to uh, you know, a psychiatric facility for a little while because, you know, we, we feel this was kind of uh, an intentional thing that you did here. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. now, I'm, now I'm there and, you know, what's going to happen? Like I said, I don't think about why. Like, what now? Right. And uh, no there was a whole plan put together about, you know, what I need to do when I got out of that facility, you know, going to see a lawyer because obviously there's going to be some issues, uh, going outpatient, going to a 12 step program and trying to figure out how I'm going to piece my life back together. If in fact there was a way, which I didn't think there was. Right. Hence my, right. hence the attempt that I was making because I didn't think, you know, that was my best thinking. Right. Plus, I also had a tremendous amount of life insurance, which was going to pay upon my demise, too. So I also thought that was a good thing. You know, most of the people can get paid back. Plenty of money left for my wife and son. And on my tombstone, they don't write he was a crook. They write he was a good guy. Right. Right. So you had it all figured out. I did. But then I woke up, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> so did you write the entire book in jail? Some of yes. the Entire book in jail. Okay. And again, jotting down notes. There were notes on the back of like, 
you know, passes to go to the medical facility. There were notes on the back of the handout that they give you when you come into jail about what you, what you, what they expect. I mean, I wrote stuff on everything, how to rewrite it, how to then write it again. And then, because sometimes when you're incarcerated, they kind of like flip your cell or they come in and they, you know, trash your room. So I didn't want to have the finished chapter or product destroyed. So what I, mm. I was doing was mailing the chapters out individually to a young lady in one of my groups, that I, one of my 12-step program groups, and she was putting them in a loose leaf together step by step so that when I got out, I would have them. Oh, that's great. That's tremendous. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, a, it was a crazy scenario, let me tell you. And again... It was done, again, more for therapeutic reasons than I want to write a book, I want to do this, I want to do that. But after a while, it was like, yeah, maybe I can really help people and maybe I can piece this together. Um, and, you know, when I got out, there were other issues that I still had to attend to. But, you know, I started looking back at it and I said, well, certainly it needs to be edited. Certainly I need to put some more time in. But, but I think it's worth it, even if it helps one person. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And it, I, I truly believe we all have a, a, a truth to share um, uh, and a truth to speak. And um, uh, there's people that need to hear it because there's people that will connect to that in a way that won't connect uh, uh, potentially uh, any other way. So w w we're supposed to be speaking our truth in my mind. Um, and when we do that, uh, other people uh, and the people that are supposed to hear it, hear it, right? And connect with it. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because keep in mind, I had that year and, you know, I had a great home group. I probably got letters from just about everybody mm. in my home group while I was incarcerated. Now I'm incarcerated for a year and new people are being entered into the group and they keep hearing about Nelson. Oh, this guy, Nelson, who's Nelson, Nelson, Nelson. Then I come out of jail and I start going back to the meetings and now people have this almost this expectation, right? Because they've mm. heard the stories mm. and they asked me to speak. And, and I remember, you know, one young lady coming up to me and being like, they were right <laughs> yes. to be, to be boosting because when you talk for some reason, it's raw, it's honest, it's real. And I can relate. And it's, you know, it's a pleasure finally meeting you and, and understanding, you know, the affinity that all these people have for you and, and what you've been through. What is life like today, six years sober? Mm. I say it every day, probably, you know, in my uh, workplace and, you know, I, I, the peace of mind, the hope, the faith, the love that I have now, which was missing so much you know I, I i look at it as two different lives like this is really a second chance for me mm. and um the peace of mind the serenity that was so non-existent the last i want to say probably five years prior to my sobriety you know it's just a weight off your shoulders you know uh, they they talk about um you know, carrying burdens and then dropping the bags. You know, there's yeah. a great book called Drop the Rock. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It talks about, I believe, step six and seven. 
and, and how we need to unburden ourselves. And, and that's what we try to do when we make our amends. And, you know, you, you got to try to just let it go. And it's hard, you know, because there are certain things that are still in your subconscious and certain things. Maybe a song comes on the radio or something else comes up and it triggers you back to a different period. But I learned to ask for help, Charlie, and I learned to understand that I need other people to help me get through it. And, you know, Einstein's got a great quote that basically I'm paraphrasing says, you know, you can't use the same thinking that got you into the problem to get you out. <laughs> Absolutely correct. You and know, I'm a huge fan of Drop the Rock and subsequently The Ripple Effect. Both of those books are tremendous books in helping tremendous. us. Tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's what I needed to do. And difficult. People ask me today, well, well, how'd you do that? And I said, well, you have to realize, again, it comes back to control. There are some things in my life that I can't control. I can't control or, you know, you can say control or change even. I can't change anything that happened in the past. Mm. You know, Bill Gates or the richest man in the world doesn't have a time machine to go back and change things that they did. Right. You know, I can't change the weather. I can't change the fact that, you know, in five minutes, it's going to be five minutes later from now. I can't change another person against their will. What can I change? I can change my perspective. I can change my bad habits and I can become a better person. That's what I need to do. And part of it is humility, right? And, and realizing that we're not, uh, you know, the almighty. Part of it is getting rid of some of that selfishness. Part of it is having some temperance for other people. You know, if somebody's living their life and they're happy, but I don't agree with the way they're living it, but the other person's happy, then I don't need to butt in. You know, I don't need to be in the drama. You know, there was so much drama, Charlie, when I was using. The only drama I have now is when me and my wife sit down and watch one of those housewife shows. You know what I mean? On Bravo. <laughs> That's where I get my drama now. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. I don't want any drama. And, and my current wife... Uh, was not born in this country she has a thick accent and, and she speaks a different language a lot of the time and at first i thought that was like she's hiding something you know she's talking to her friends behind my right. back <laughs> right. And, right and after a while you know what i said charlie i'm so glad i don't know what the heck they're talking about because i don't have to get involved in the drama exactly absolutely i swear absolutely. to you and that was a revelation for me unless i hear my name because she would have conversations in English and I would find myself butting in. Right. Interjecting into somebody else's conversation that I have no business. <laughs> right. And we don't have to, we don't have to, you know, get involved in every fight or argument that we're invited to either. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? People ask me all the time, do you have an opinion on this? I say, no, I don't have an opinion. They're like, how could you not have an opinion? I'm like, you're going to push it? Okay, obviously I have an opinion. Guess what? I'm just not going to share it with you. Right, right. Because I don't need to have that conversation. I used to sit in the bar for 12 hours a day debating what came first, the chicken or the egg. Indeed. Or who's better, Michael or LeBron? Those were great bar conversations. Absolutely. But now I don't have the time for that nor the need to have those discussions. What called you to begin to work in the field of uh, addiction and alcoholism and the treatment of it? Good question. Um, I part of my incarceration, the, the most of the time that I spent 
in in the county jail where most people don't spend that much time in county. It's usually they're there for a brief stint or they're moving on. I spent my whole 12 months there. Mm -hmm. So I was in part of the jail. It was called the DART program, which is the drug and alcohol rehabilitation treatment part of the jail. So if there are 1,800 people in the jail, there are about 180 people, maybe three cell blocks of 60 that have this program. Part of that program is you have a morning spiritual meeting. You have a meeting in the afternoon. You have a meeting at night. Mm. Speakers would come into the jail and speak. If we didn't have a speaker, they needed expediters, we were called, to run the meetings. So knowing that I had this, the sober time under my belt, Knowing that I was a little bit older, knowing that I was involved in the program, they asked me to run meetings. And I started running the meetings. I come up with topics. And, you know, obviously it's a confined, confined environment and everybody had to attend the meetings, even though a lot of people didn't want to, um, but they had to show up. And obviously they didn't all listen. But again, I went back to if I'm helping one person. Absolutely. And a couple of months in, I got called down to the advisor's office there and you know for a meeting and he said um you know nelson what are you going to do when you get out you know they disbarred you right you can't practice law i said no i can't practice law i'm not really sure what i'm going to do and he said well i've been talking to a lot of the people where you're in in your cell block and there's a lot of minority people there's a lot of younger people there's a lot of gang people and for some reason, everybody's relating to this old white man who's telling them stories. <laughs> and I said, really? And he said, yes, I find it just as shocking as you. And I think you might want to consider, instead of being a legal counselor going forward, maybe you should be a therapeutic or alcohol or substance abuse counselor. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that. And by the time I was ready to be released, like the last few months, I had, I had, he got me an application to um, a teaching college where I was going to be able to take the courses. I had written my essay. We had submitted my application. So when I got out, all they needed to do was meet with me. And basically I was on my way. And going through that process and now working in this field is that something that enhances your recovery? Do you, do you, how does that play into uh, your recovery today um, uh, on a daily basis, working with folks who are either, you know, in recovery, contemplating recovery, or in a place where, you know, recovery might be something that they need to, uh, that they need, need to embark upon? Right. So there's so many different stages of change. There's pre-contemplation, contemplation, you know, action. Um, I think what you have to remember when you're in the field is that just because you're going to work every day and working with patients and clients who are trying to get what you got, sometimes you forget that you still need to go to meetings. You still need to keep mm. up your program. Mm. Right. So mm. while I'm helping people every day, giving them my knowledge, um, trying to get them to see the light, that's great. But I'm not really self-disclosing to them my issues and my problems on a daily basis. So while it's great, because all day long I'm talking recovery and I'm helping people, you got to remember that you still need help and you still need to reach out and you still got to call your sponsor and you still got to go to your meetings. And 
you know, I go to church too on Sunday, you know, I find that to be a positive message. So I'm a big fan of wherever you can get a positive message, take it. Mm. Whether it's 12 step, whether it's church, whether it's some other type of recovery program, there are a lot of them out there, self-help and other things. I don't care what you do, find something that works for you and make sure you work it, you know, and, and put in the effort that's needed. What was the biggest lesson that you learned in your recovery process? Mm. What was the biggest lesson that I learned? I, I think it's kind of what I touched on earlier, the difference between the planning and the projecting. You know, the negative thoughts and the pessimism of for the future. So even as I sit here today and I'm talking to you, there are many financial issues that I still have. Mm -hmm. There's restitution that needs to be paid. Mm -hmm. um, the IRS and some other people have come knocking because, you know, the money I stole, that's income, you know? So that's right. there's a lot of things that are still on the back burner. Obviously, I can only do what I can do. And I've had meetings with all these people and things of that nature. Um, so the, the thought of what's it all worth sometimes creeps into your head. You know, uh, I'm still going to have all these issues, but guess what? The promises come true. And, you know, things that used to baffle us no longer do. And, and, and the financial aspects don't overwhelm me anymore. I do what I can do. Um, I make whatever payments I can make. I try to do the next right thing. And the other main thing that I can't stress enough is you can't quit before the miracle. You know, you're going to have good days and bad days. That's life. You're going to have good days and bad days in addiction. You're going to have good days and bad days in recovery. Absolutely. But we have to understand that it's just one day and tomorrow's going to be a different day. Get through today. Anybody can get through today. You know, the saying is when we bring in the guilt and remorse from yesterday and the trepidation about tomorrow, which may never come, now we got a problem. What do you hope readers will get out of your book? Above anything else, what do you hope that they'll get? I think that they have to get, and I think they'll see it in the book, that the effort is up to you. Your sponsor can push you. Your family can push you. You may want to do it for your kids or your wife or your business or whatever else. But you need to have the desire to live a life of sobriety and not abstinence. There's a difference, I'm sure you know, Charlie, between abstinence and sobriety. Yes. You know? And when I went into the program in the beginning, I remember vividly a meeting with my sponsor, his sponsor, and his sponsor. There were four of us there. And they said, you know, you're going to give up the drinking. I said, well, you know, I figured that. You're going to give up the drugs. Well, you know, I figured that. You're going to give up the gambling. I said, take it easy. Take it easy. <laughs> then the next one was, you're going to give up the girlfriend. I said, you bitches ain't leaving me nothing. <laughs> I, what's left? I mean, I understand that. And they said, I said, I thought I was just going to stop drinking and drugging. And they said, oh, no, that's abstinence. We're talking about a program of sobriety. You're going to mm -hmm. become a better person. That's right. I said, I didn't sign up for this. Better person. <laughs> but, and again, you know, I'll try to keep it clean, but, you know, 
If you're a difficult person when you're drinking and drugging and you just stop drinking and drugging, you're probably going to become a more difficult person, right? No doubt about <laughs> it. The old saying so, is, what do you get when you sober up a horse thief? Right. You got a horse thief. You get a sober horse thief. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I kept it clean because I would use different words. That's <laughs> 100%. Um, yeah. I mean, so you need, it's a total change in perspective. There's portions in the big book, especially the, the, the story about acceptance, where the guy said, I had to change the lenses in my glasses. Mm. Right? Mm. I used to say to people at the end, my wife could do no right. She could have walked into the den while I'm watching a football game with a beer hat on, stark naked, and a pizza in each hand, and I would have said, why'd you get anchovies? Right. <laughs> right? That, there was nothing she could have done that was positive. Yeah. No matter what she did, my yeah. glasses were so negative, Charlie, I couldn't, you know. And that was never me. You know, that was never me. And, and that's a piece of me that I had lost. And I had a conversation with my wife, and I said, you know, this is what they're telling me to do. Be a better father, be a better husband, be a better guy. So I have to do this. This is part of my program. I'm like, but why are you doing it? You know? Mm. And she said, because you were like the greatest guy in person I knew for most of our, you know, uh, engagement, marriage, everything else until you somehow lost it all. And maybe we can get you back to that person. And I thought that was a pretty cool answer. Yeah. Coming from a regular civilian, you know, who was not addicted. Right, right. What? You know, we couldn't survive. There was too much damage and we really couldn't survive. Uh, so we ended up, you know, splitting up. And how long after happened. you had sobered up did you split up? Well, you know, during the year process before I went to jail, we tried um, to rekindle. And before I went in, we sat down and had a discussion I basically said, listen, you, I'm going in for a year. They're not going to give me any good behavior. This is the deal. Do you want to split up before that? Do you want to, you know, because we both knew what the handwriting was on the wall. Yeah. And she said to me, I don't really want to say in the same sentence that to, to my son, yeah, we're taking your dad to jail and we're getting divorced. So we waited and while I was in, incarcerated, you know, she would have to bring my son. He was only about 14. We wouldn't have the discussions then. But then when he went to summer camp in the summer, we started talking about the, prog the, the possibility of divorce while I was in jail. Mm. And then when I got out, we amped it up. And, you know, it still took a little while to get everything finalized. But um, it was a foregone conclusion. Yeah. But we tried. Yeah. We did try. And it just... <laughs> In, in handling those kinds of things in sobriety, in recovery, right? A lot of times we think or folks may think that it's all uh, hunky-dory the minute we stop drinking and nothing bad happens. The reality is life continues to go on. Life Correct. Lifey. And... Lifey things happen to us, like divorce, like death, like loss, like change, like uh, difficulties in relationships. 
But as we progress in our program and as we progress in sobriety and in recovery, we have new tools to be able to deal with these things. It's not that the bad things don't happen. It's not that negative things don't happen. It's that we have more tools to deal with them today than we did when we were drinking and using and 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 in that and that when we were in that life. Yeah, well, you know, one hundred percent. And I tell people that come in and say, well, why should I get sober? Why should I do this? I said, listen, I can't promise you you're going to marry a model like I did and, uh, you know, uh, give up all your financial things and win the lottery. I can't promise you that. But what I will promise you is that your life will be better for getting sober. That your worst day in sobriety will be better than your best day using. I can guarantee you that. So if you want to have a better life, and if you want to move forward in a more selfless manner, do the next right thing, you'll be better off. Again, I can't promise you wealth, riches, other things. But yes, the hard part is utilizing the tools that you get in your sober toolbox mm. when these issues come up. Mm, no doubt. And that's where the programs come in. And that's where, listen... My sponsor told me, if it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you want to drink, call me. If it's 2 o'clock in the morning and you want to kill yourself, you better call somebody else because I'm just another, you know, drunken idiot like you. You need professional help then, you know. So I had a team of people. I had a sponsor. I had other people. I had an outpatient therapist. You know, so I had these people that if I felt a certain way, I could reach out. And I recently had a conversation. I was feeling a little bit off the beam about a month ago. And I called my sponsor and I said, I'm having all these thoughts and cravings and all these things. And, you know, I'm six years almost sober. What's the deal? And he said, I'm going to tell you two things. And that's it. I said, what are those two things? He said, one, you're human. And two, you're an addict. Have a nice day. (laughs) And he hung up up the phone. (laughs) And five minutes, about five seconds later, it rings. He's like, listen, I'm not trying to be a jerk. But you had these thoughts, you had these feelings, you had all these dreams, whatever you want to call it, but you didn't use, did you? No. Did you have an extramarital affair? No. Did you go to the racetrack? No. So guess what I'm going to tell you? I'm proud of you. Hmm. I can't control the thoughts and feelings you're going to get, but you didn't act on them in a negative way. You used the tools that you've been able to accumulate over the last six years, shook it off, didn't relapse and did the right thing. So I'm proud of you. Have a nice day. Call me next week. <laughs> I like your sponsor, by the way, based oh, yeah, on no, all no, the no, things yeah, I've really, heard. I really like your sponsor. He's, he's yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we had a lot more in common than we realized and the sarcasm. And, and I was able to give it back to him too. Right. So, um, you know, it, it was a very therapeutic relationship. That's both tremendous. Yeah. That. But yeah, I mean, you know. It doesn't sound like he takes a lot of crap from anybody either, by the way. No, um, <laughs> he was very, you know, I almost didn't ask him to be my sponsor because he's one of these people that everybody looks up to. I figured he was sponsoring 10, 12 guys, you know, and he's got one of these voices and I explained it in the book too, that his presence when you see him is not you know, overwhelming, but when he opens his mouth, it's like the voice of God coming. It's like a voice, <laughs> voiceover radio voice. You know what I mean? Totally. And it's just like, holy cow. Like when this guy talks, it's, it's impressive. Yeah. And, um, you know, I always told him and, you know, uh, it's, it's in the book too that I, I give him a lot of the credit 
But he shies away from that and says, you know who you should, you should be giving the credit to your higher power, not to me. Absolutely. Nelson, before we close, to the newcomer or to the person contemplating recovery, speak to, speak to them for a moment. And uh, uh, what would you say to uh, the individual who is listening to this right now and, you know, has connected in a way, right? Um, and is contemplating recovery or is new in recovery and everything's bad and everything is uh, upside down. What do you say to them? I'm going to say to them that, you know, listen, no matter what your circumstances are, realize that you no longer have to live that way, the way you're currently living, you know? Um, I'm living proof of that, you know? But as a reminder, again, like I said earlier, it's, you know, don't quit before the miracle. There's nothing more important in your life than your health, your mental and physical health. And if you're that far along in addiction, you're doing some physical abuse to your body, whether you believe you are or not. Mm-hmm. And you're certainly doing some mental abuse to your mind. And listen, I, I, I didn't think there was a way out. Hence, hence the actions that I took. Because right. I didn't know about recovery. I didn't know that I could find the higher power and gain the spirituality. Think outside the box. Don't be afraid to take some chances in your life. If you just stay in your little cocoon, then you're probably going to remain there and have to deal with the consequences for the rest of your life. There are two choices. Keep going and die from the addiction or do something about it and live a better life. Begin to take some actions that may not make a whole lot of sense in the beginning, but when you look back at them after not too long, you you quickly realize, quickly understand that these actions are making drastic changes in how you perceive the world, how you look at life, and how you feel about yourself, others, and your place in the world. Yeah, and don't worry about the means to the end. Just focus on the end. Mm. You know, my sponsor said, are you willing to do whatever I tell you to do? And I said, yeah, if you tell me to get naked and act like a chicken and that's going to help me get sober, that's what I'm going to (laughs) do. I'm going to do whatever you told me to do because you have many years of sobriety. I'm watching you. I see the way you carry yourself. I know that you have relationship issues, family issues, financial issues, and I see how you handle them. That is what I want. Tell me how to get it. He had... And probably still has what you want, so you do what he does. Correct. Yeah. And it and that's not. It's really that simple. Be difficult for anybody to understand. Right. It's really that you know? simple, right? It is, and I tell people, it's a simple program. It's not easy, but it's no. simple. Man. Don't drink and drug. Go to a meeting. Follow some suggestions. Work the program and the steps, and see where you are. And and. The biggest thing, have some patience, not only with the process, but with yourself. Because mm. we tend to be hardest on ourselves. No doubt. No doubt about it. We are often our own worst critics. Nelson, thank you so much for the yeah, time. Yeah, listen, again, you know, just for public, you know, it's, it's the March to Madness, the March to Madness. Um, you can find it pretty much everywhere, or you can go to the website, which is www dot nelson com. Uh, there's all kinds of information about me and there's also some prompts that will take you directly to places where you can find the book
And we will have all of that in the show notes. We'll have your book recommendation in the show notes as well. Um, uh, Drop the Rock, we will have all of the information in terms of being able to learn more about Nelson uh, and his newest work, The March to Madness, which is a fascinating tale uh, about the uh, the uh, the proverbial house of cards that uh, uh, and 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 how all of that played out in in, in very very entertaining detail uh, that I think you will rather enjoy. So definitely go check that out. And again, Nelson, thank you so much for spending time here on the Way Out podcast. Uh, 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 it's been uh, uh, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it very much, Charlie, and stay safe to everybody out there. Do the next right thing, and and we'll all be okay. All righty, all righty. Thank you, Nelson. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week, so keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast.com all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to The Way Out Podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.